So we are continuing through Ephesians uh, this morning. Dan finished up chapter 4 last week, and we'll be diving in uh, to the first part of, of chapter 5. Um, looking back on chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, uh, Paul, in his letter to the, to the church at Ephesus, is focusing on having a new life. And this is Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. He writes, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, Paul continues kind of the same theme right through the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice, to God. But we see Paul's tone transition a little bit from that first verse, excuse me, first and second verse, going into verse 3. So from there he moves in and he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now Paul focuses on three behaviors in this section, he talks about sexual immorality, covetousness, and filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Now the question is, why these? And the reason is because they are behaviors focused on self-satisfaction. They're all things that seek our gratification, our happiness, our glory, while ignoring God's purpose for the underlying behaviors and the consequences of that ignorance. And it's interesting, coming out of that first verse, where we're presented with a selfless Christ who was sacrificed on the cross for us and immediately transitions to talking about selfish behaviors that we are prone to. So let's talk a little bit about some of these. First, sexual immorality. Now, to understand the nature of sexual immorality, we need to understand God's design for sex. Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Here's the thing. God is very well aware of what he created. He knows that certain aspects of one of the genders he created get other aspects of the other gender all riled up. That was by design. He's very well aware of what he created, and it was very good. God also designed that these two genders, male and female, are to be married. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Note that God created one Adam and one Eve. Not several Eves for one Adam to have at once. Not several Eves for Adam in case the first one doesn't work out. Not one Eve to use for experience and another to actually marry. Not Adam and Steve, not Adam and Eve and Steve, not Adam and his online chat partner, Fruit Love and Eve, one Adam, one Eve. Amen. Jesus reinforces this, as recorded in Matthew 19. Jesus has left preaching somewhere and he runs into the Pharisees uh, who are like the Jehovah's Witnesses but are lazy. They don't come to you, they just wait till Jesus comes to them and then they want to harass him about some stuff. And he, they ask him about divorce. And Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this is one man, one woman, one marriage for one lifetime. The Bible records Adam and Eve coming together 
as one flesh. Now, yes, this is a joining in perception to be a single unit functioning in the world together, but it's also actually coming together physically in one flesh and being naked without shame. Within this design, we are to enjoy ourselves. Adam and Eve weren't just allowed to enjoy themselves, they were supposed to. That was God's design. Those desires for each other were given to them by God. We see reflections of this from the often frisky King Solomon in Proverbs 5. He says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, I'm a young guy and I'm still prone to blushing in public. So I'm not going to read it out loud, but you can read Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, chapter 7, 1 through 9. Uh, the writer of this is, is looking at the figure of his bride and he is enjoying it. But we should be getting the right impression here. God has designed these things for our pleasure. It is true that sex is also designed for procreation, but it is in the context of a committed relationship. The Bible describes sex in early Genesis by using the word no. Genesis 4.1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Genesis 4.17 says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. The Hebrew word for knew here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament in other ways to help us to understand that this act is not just physical relationship. It's a deeper understanding than that. It's an intimacy, a closeness. When we read that Adam knew Eve, we understand that they are close. They are intimate. They have an understanding and comprehension of each other. This deep connection is something that is often hard to stand, understand, uh, especially for men. Uh, Solomon attempts to articulate this confusion in Proverbs 30. He says, three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin, his wife. So, that's sex as God designed it. Now back to Paul. When he says that sexual immorality must not be named among you, he uses the Greek word porneia, which covers all matter of sexual sins. This was necessary, of course, uh, because if you give a specific list of what people shouldn't do, some kinky fellow down the road is going to find something just outside of that list and then start to do it. So he uses porneia, it means all manner of sexual sins. It's an all-inclusive list. But you can think of it to also to include anything that is not allowed within that previous discussion of what God designed. Now some of the prevalent items within that particular uh, span of sexual sins in our culture is pornography and sex outside of marriage. How prevalent is it? 30% of the data transmission on the internet is pornography. 30%. This is where people bank, share emails, look up news. 30% pornography. The top pornography site garners 4.4, wait for it, billion page views per month. That's right. Christianity Today had an article that said 70% of American men aged 18 to 34 view internet pornography once a month. There was a pastor that read that, and he was a bit skeptical. He said, it's certainly not that much. So he took a, uh, a poll of his congregation. In the church... He found that 60% of his congregation had looked at porn in the last year. 25% in the last month. We just came back from, Dan was talking about a pastor's conference in Orlando. And they said 40% of pastors are reported to have an addiction to pornography. 
40% pastors. This is not somebody else's problem. This is our problem. It's us. It's our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our wives, our kids, parents. The pornography problem exists here, too. This is not somebody else's problem. In 2009, a study found that 88% of people reported having sex prior to getting married. By comparison, that's over twice the amount of people that voted in the last election. And it's slightly higher than the number of people who use their smartphone in the public bathroom. I heard about that. That's a lot of folks, guys. The percentage for those professing to follow Christ? 80%. February 2012 article in the New York Times confirmed that for women under 30, 50% of the children were born to unmarried mothers. Almost all the rise in non-marital births came from couples who were living together. That's not extensive, obviously. But that's where we're at as a culture. Paul also talks a little bit about covetousness. It says, uh, covetousness is a jealous longing for what others possess. It permits your desire of those things that other people have to influence how you treat them. Or it'll cause you to commit other sins, theft, murder, lies, to fulfill your jealous inclination. Uh, God addresses this as part of his Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty seventeen. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Also, it shows value, covetousness shows value to a particular thing over trust and obedience to the Lord as the provider. In Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6, it talks about it this way. It says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also, is also is vanity and striving after wind. You ever seen that in people? People who have voids in their life that they just can't seem to fill. And they keep buying things. They keep seeking out new people, new houses, new cars, new partners. And they can't seem to fill that gap that's in their life? It's because it's a God-sized gap. Paul ultimately identifies covetousness as idolatry. Idolatry comes from the concept of idol worship, or basically the worship of anything that is not God. Idolatry is what ultimately connects these two things, the sexual immorality and covetousness. Both reflect the worship of something other than God. For sexual immorality... We're worshiping ourselves or worshiping somebody else, the bodies of somebody else. For covetousness, we are pledging our allegiance to the possessions of others. Now, some of you have carved out some of these things in your mind as if they don't apply to you. You recognize yourself in them, but you think you can handle it, that you have handled it, that you are handling it. Some of you are trying to put yourself in God's spot. Judge for yourself what is important and what isn't. Or perhaps you're thinking, what does God even care? 
Why is this even a big deal? Well, let's talk about that. Let's look at pornography. What's the big deal? Well, first of all, it provides a distorted view of your spouse. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Wife, your youth, awesome. But you're filling your head with images of others. Others that don't belong to you. And you're setting a standard of variety of which that person can never meet. They can't keep up with a hundred people that look different, act different, are different. It's a distorted view of your spouse. You also can't know your wife because you're hiding things from her. You can't know your husband because you're hiding things from him. One of the, okay, one of the benefits uh, of the marital relationship, uh, and this tends to work for guys more, more than ladies. Ladies are a little bit uh, able to hold off just a little bit longer. But if you get in some sort, of, some sort of spat, predicament, a guy will try to hold on as long as he can, but he'll eventually come back. He will be... He will find his way back to reconcile. If there's not that intimacy with your wife, if there's not that intimacy with your husband, you can just ignore that. You don't have to work on your problems. You just be lazy. You don't have to reconcile with your wife. Uh, you can go find a woman elsewhere. Find her online. At your own time. At your own effort. Dial one up. Viewing pornography puts lust in your heart. Jesus warned against this. Say, adultery of the heart. Okay? Those people that you're watching, they're sinning. They're having sex outside of marriage. You're watching it. You're enjoying it. Those people need Jesus. They don't need to entertain you with their sin. It's like paying five bucks to go watch somebody kill somebody else. Same concept, guys. You're enjoying the sin of somebody else. You're also filling your mind with junk. How lasting is a sexual image in your mind? Do you remember the first time you kissed somebody? you remember that? Do you remember the first time that, that you had sex with somebody? Those are images that tend to burn in your mind. Just because it's someone else doesn't mean it's not going to stick in there. Those are images that are going to stick in your head forever. They're going to pop up when you don't want them to pop up. When you're trying to think of something else. It's filling your mind with junk. Philippians 4.8, Paul's writing says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I didn't see junk on the list. Fill your mind with good stuff. Now maybe you're single or you're unmarried and you're saying, well, I I'm looking at pornography, but I'm not hurting anyone. You're hurting you. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that you're hurting you? What does God care? He cares because you're destroying yourself. Natasha Harris was a 30-year-old mother, eight kids. She died of a heart attack in 2010. Contributing to her heart attack was her two-gallon-a-day Coca-Cola habit. She had one right when she woke up and one right before bed. She drank 30 cans of pop a day. Is it wrong to drink pop? No, it's delicious. I love sweet, sweet soda. But she drank too much. She took something that was good and she poisoned herself with it. In the same way, we are taking something awesome that God has given and we're poisoning ourselves with it. We're poisoning our minds, we're poisoning our hearts, we're poisoning our flesh. 
What about sex outside of marriage? Couples who engage in sex before marriage are far more likely to divorce. According to a study by the National Survey of Family Growth, premarital sex increases their odds of divorce by about 60%. The more promiscuous you are before marriage, the more likely you are to commit adultery after marriage. Couples who live together before marriage are unlikely to marry. A Columbia University study found that only 26% of women surveyed and 19% of men married the person they were living with. Another study showed that even if they do marry, couples who begin their marriages through cohabitation are almost twice as likely to divorce within 10 years compared to all first marriages. People who have premarital sex run the chance of marrying someone who's not right for them. Why? Because intimate intimacy can be emotionally binding. It makes couples feel closer than they really are. Couples who sleep together outside of marriage often suffer guilt and fear due to the dangers of STDs or unwanted pregnancy. And guilt can lead to frigidity and impotence. Two-thirds of couples who live together and have kids split before the kid turns 10. Why does God care? Because these aren't good results. You don't have to love God to recognize that this is not success. I think just for a moment that maybe God is on to something. Maybe he knows a thing or two when he introduces wonderful things like sex and marriage, but puts limits on it. Why does God care? Because he loves you. And he desperately wants you to keep you from destroying yourself. That's why the limits are there in the first place. He designed things a certain way and they were perfect. Holy living is healthy living. Living in a way in which we do not destroy ourselves separate from a culture that's willing to. Paul continues in Ephesians 5, talking about consequences. Uh, verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance. Compare that with verse 1, where Paul says, Imitators of God are beloved children. We're talking about that, uh, that pastor's conference. We, um, uh, we, one of the biggest things to, to, over the week was to try to figure out where to eat. Because uh, there, uh, there was no place to make food in the hotel. And, uh, and so we had to decide where to go. And, and groups of guys are traditionally bad at trying to figure out where to eat. They do this, I don't care, and wait for the lady to decide. Um, and so we were trying to figure out where to go after, uh, after one of the sessions. And uh, one of the guys, uh, Mario, who's a, a pastor at the Spanish church uh, on the south side... He suggested this, this restaurant. It was called Texas de Brazil. I thought, okay, well, that sounds all right. We'll go there. So we, so we drove there. And, and Dan and I really should have seen this uh, when we walked up and there was complimentary valet parking. Compliment, I mean, free. You pull up, guys in a suit, free valet. We should, I, blind, total blind. We should have seen this coming. So we go in there and we go to sit down and we sit at the thing and there's no menus. No menus anywhere. And the lady comes up and she says, have you guys been here before? I said, well, no. But one of the guys had, he goes, yes. And she goes, okay, well, the salad bar is over there. I said, okay, salad bar. So um, still no menu, no ordering. I walked over to the salad bar. And uh, there's some funky stuff on the salad bar, man. There's a, they have like a lobster bisque. Uh, there's a, there's a, some kind of salad with um, uh, grapes and celery and cottage cheese in it. Um, there's a shrimp, shrimp salad. And there was a wheel of cheese. Like Parmesan cheese, which you like chip off your own cheese. That, that's pricey. That looks pricey. Okay. So, but anyway, I'm getting the salad bar and I, I take it all back to the table and I thought, okay, all right, salad bar, that's probably going to be a little heavy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the waitress comes up and she goes, well, the gauchos will be by. And I think, well, gauchos, that sounds cool. And sure enough, here comes a guy with a big, long skewer with, like, fire-roasted meat on it. He had, like a, like, a flank steak with a spear in the middle. And he comes in and he goes, steak? And then he saws a little off onto your plate. you got to help him out. Uh, and then he leaves and another guy comes by and he's got, like, sirloin wrapped in, in bacon. And he goes, would you like one? I say, well, yeah. So he, like, puts, he takes one off. And they come by with, like, leg of lamb and, and ribs and, they, and chicken and, and stuff with more bacon and garlic and stuff in it. And, and about the second time this meat gaucho comes by, I thought, oh, this is going to be way more expensive than I was anticipating. And so, and I'm, and I'm, and I luckily had ordered water. I was pretty happy with my water purchase. And so I was kind of sweating and quick. Here's, here's my thought, is I thought, boy, that's, that's going to be 30 bucks right there. And I thought, boy, that's going to be expensive. I didn't budget $30 for this meal. 30 bucks, it's going to be outrageous. So, uh, so the bill comes, the bill comes, and it's $50. And God bless Dan, he, he offered to wash dishes to try to help us out a little bit. Um, and, so, and so we had to pay, I had to put it on the credit card. I was totally unprepared. I had cash and I didn't have it. So, uh, so, so we paid this thing. Luckily I did, the poor guy at the end of the table ordered dessert. $10 piece of cake, poor guy. And we could, like goaded him into it. Oh, you should get cake, you should get cake, definitely. Poor guy. So... So I left this restaurant, this Texas de Brazil, 10 pounds heavier, $50 lighter, and owing a phone call to my wife as to why I spent $50 at the Texas de Brazil out with five of the guys at the pastor's conference. And so I, actually my wife was pretty cool about it. She, she knows I'm a sucker. So I mean, it was, the conversation went pretty well. It's like, hey, I made a terrible decision. Well, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the thing was, is like, I didn't know the consequences when I sat down. Like I said, the valet should have given it away, right? But I, I didn't see it coming. And so afterwards, I recognized the consequences. When guys bring you fresh fire-roasted meat to your table, the consequences, it's going to cost you big money. But I, did not, I didn't know that at the time. Wheel of cheese, big money. I didn't know the consequences at the time. There was no menu to tell me what the consequences of the dinner would be. There was a decent guy that we knew that vouched for it. I actually think someone must have paid for him the first time because he looked a little shocked too, the guy that suggested the restaurant. But I ate and I ate and I ate, and I didn't see this stuff coming. But that is not our case with God. We are well aware of the consequences of our actions. Paul said, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he continues, and he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, the sons of disobedience is a Hebrew-inspired phrase that describes people who habitually live in disobedient sin without repentance. It's important that we see Paul's distinction here. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of God for those who are acting in consistent disobedience to God in these areas, thereby proving they are the sons of disobedience or the sons of the devil. To be sure, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you cannot out God's grace. But we are not separated from our works in that they are an indication of the state of our faith. James 2.17-22 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. There's been a persistent heresy in the church throughout the ages that because we live under the grace of God and the death of Jesus, we may continue to sin. Romans 6, 1-2, through 2, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So that brings us to repentance. Note that the presence of sexual immorality or covetousness are not the distinction here. It is the unrepentant, habitual living in these sins that is the issue. Repentance means to turn away from. It's used also to imply a change of direction. Thus, to repent of sin is to turn away from it. It is not just being remorseful. It's not just taking responsibility. It's not just having regret. You need to turn away from it. If you're having sex outside of marriage, you have to stop and ask forgiveness. But then you need to move out if you're living together. You break up if you do not intend to marry. If you're looking at pornography, you not, need, not only need to go to God, but you stop. And then you tell your wife or your husband who you are sinning against. You get an accountability partner to report to. Someone who you answer to on a weekly basis as to where your eyes have gone, where your thoughts have gone. You get counseling if you need it. No inheritance is a heavy consequence. You need to take strong measures. Your repentance should reflect that God is mighty and He will get you through this. But it's not just regret. It's repentance. As much as we are motivated by consequences, we have to recognize that simply waiting for worldly consequences to be our protection is very, very dangerous. We are often blinded by withheld consequences. We are deceived when we are getting away with it. Some of you have been looking at porn for years. And you're getting away with it. Right? You've never gotten caught. There's been no consequence to it. Some of you have been cheating on your spouse for years. Or lusting after somebody else. There's no consequence to it. Some of you are having sex outside of marriage. You've been doing it for years. Maybe with different people. And you can't see a change in your life. Why do you think that is? Is it because God's rules are archaic? His protections are unnecessary? Too restrictive? You're being set up. The will of Satan is that your sins persist. Sure, he could destroy your earthly life by bringing your sin to light. You may lose your job, your house, your family, your dignity. But you still have time to run to God and to seek forgiveness. But if He can keep you in your current frame of mind, where you know you are doing wrong, but you don't change because there is no consequence for continuing, you're going to be robbed of your repentance as well. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You're not getting away with it. 
You're drowning in it. You just don't know it. You think you're free. You've become trapped. Remember that part in Proverbs that we talked about earlier, where Solomon is talking about enjoying the wife of your youth? Here's the section that directly follows. He says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The biggest deceit is the appearance of freedom. We think we are making our own choices, but you are either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Romans 6, 20-23 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where we are selfish, God is generous. If we continue to be slaves of sin, it is only because we have rejected God's freedom. Now, some of you thinking, well, I'm not a slave to sin. Okay, stop sinning. Give it a day, a week, a year, ten years. If you're not a slave to sin, then you'll stop. You can just quit. But you can't. Don't enslave yourself. Don't chain yourself to death. Accept God's invitation to life. Paul continues in Ephesians 5, 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love that. I absolutely love that. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. My wife and I chose to, to cloth diaper the kids, or tried to. Um, diapers doing what they do, getting dirty, yeah? Uh, some more than others, depending on the circumstance. Um, and so we would, we would take these cloth diapers and you had to, to run them through the washer a couple times. You'd be careful with soap, it puts red blotches on the kid's bum. Um, so we'd wash the things out, and certain circumstances, wink if you know what I'm talking about, uh, hang around longer than others. And so you'd wash them there, and there'd still be remnants, things hanging out that were not supposed to be there after you washed them. And we would, um, we'd, we'd wash them in the washer and then hang them up uh, within the house. And, and that stuff would still be there. But if you took the cloth diapers after the wash and you took them outside and you hung them on the line in the sun, those stains went away. And then the smell and stuff went away. I don't know how it works. I just know that if I hang them up in the house and let them dry, it tends to leave stuff. But if we wash them and we take them outside and we expose them to the light and we put them in the sun 
They're clean. They're white as if nothing had happened. I don't talk to you today about sin and porn and sexual immorality and covetousness because I want you to feel guilty. It's because I want you to recognize yourself if you are in these circumstances in case you have been deceived. And because I want you to step out into the light. To stop hiding in the darkness. Stop trying to scrub away the dirt and sin by yourself. The only way to be free is to crawl out from the hiding spot. Allow yourself to be cleansed. This is why I like that light thing so much. And John talks about this in the first chapter of, um, of John. Um, he just talks about being the light. And, and something about coming out of a, a place like this where the lights are pretty dim and your eyes are kind of squinted. And, and you walk out the door and the sun is shining. I mean, it's warm. And it hits your face. And you can feel it across your skin. And your body's just getting warm for having stood in it. And you close your eyes and you just, it, just, it just hits you and embraces you. And that is the grace of God. That is the light of God saying, stop living in the darkness. You don't have to live that way. And we hide there because we don't want anybody else to see. We don't want people to see what we're doing or what we're thinking. It could, it could ruin our life. It could ruin our relationship. It could ruin our work. But it's destroying you. And you can't be effective to anybody if you're being destroyed yourself in the darkness. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't leave here today in the darkness. If you have something that you need to confess, please do it. We're going to pray here in just a minute. Talk to God. If that thing needs to be confessed to your spouse, do it. If you're a spouse where you feel like something may be confessed to you, pray that God will give you a heart to receive it in love. There isn't any reason to continue to walk in darkness. Let's pray.